Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome to the first edition of our new show, We Earth Radio, conversations that make a difference. And I am really thrilled to have my friend Michael Mead on today. He is someone who's always making a difference. Michael is a renowned storyteller, author, and scholar of mythology, anthropology, and psychology. He combines hypnotic storytelling, street-savvy perceptiveness, and spell-binding interpretations of ancient myths with a deep knowledge of cross-cultural rituals. Michael, such an honor to have you. Great to be with you, Michael, and congratulations on the new show. You have a series that's just starting or just started called Inner Wisdom, Finding Healing in a Divided World. I can't imagine anything more appropriate now than finding healing in a divided world. So let's talk about the, the divisiveness that's rampant. I've never in my lifetime ever experienced local or global separation, alienation, this huge disconnect that people are marginalized and angry and don't listen to each other. What, what do you think is the heart of it? It's actually a very big issue that is manifesting at all levels, celestial as well as terrestrial, as well as personal. And most people now experience it through political divides and culture wars. And of course, climate crisis divides people. So we're in all these crises, but being a mythologist, I'm looking at it in other ways also. Big picture, we're at the end of an era, which means we're also at the beginning of the next era, although there's always a gap in between, which is the liminal area of uncertainty. If you just take this idea that we're at the end and headed for a beginning, that's the biggest division there can be. It's, it's death and rebirth. It's descent before rising again. And mythologically speaking, it's a return to the time before creation. So before creation, you have darkness, which is kind of what we're having an experience of. And then the light comes and divides the heavens from the earth. So because it's the end of one era, the beginning of another, we're actually in a cosmological divide. And then people that follow astrology and stuff you go right into the astrology and you have Saturn and let's say Saturn and Pluto. And so you have attention in planets and then you get down to the cultural and move to the human level. And what happens is all of the old political issues have risen to the top and become intensified. The rich and the poor couldn't be further, more further apart in the Western world. The issues that have been there for hundreds of years of racial division, a reckoning on race. It's all these things that divide us all up at the same time. 
But I'm trying to say it's also bigger than anything political or anything ideological. And that's not to scare people. It's to make, to frame it, to frame it so that people understand that we're in this big story. It's not going to be over soon. And one of the most painful parts of it, well, you have now the pandemic of COVID, which divides people also. Some won't wear a mask, all that kind of stuff. Everything that comes up gets divided immediately because we're in this end beginning stage. But then it comes down to the individual and the weight of all those divisions at all levels of life come down on the individual and people feel divided inside. Issues that were there in infancy come back. Issues that people have repressed or suppressed and won't deal with come back. And then on top of it, in many places, like I'm in the States, you have people literally socially distanced, divided for the benefit of each other, divided for health. And so when I'm referring to a divided world, I mean all the way top to bottom. What you're talking about, this division, could also look at it as fragmented. There's a big attention right now on the impact of trauma. In shamanism, they call it uh, soul loss. You know, we're pushing down parts of ourselves that we don't want to feel, that we want to keep, as you were saying, the darkness. We want to keep away from the darkness, away from the unknown, away from the certainty. And yet that's the very area that we're drowning in. And when we look at people, Gabrielle Roth, one of my teachers for, of course, 40 years, used to say, we're trizophrenics because our mind is doing one thing, our heart is doing another, and our body is doing another. So how do we allow ourselves to open to the darkness and to the uncertainty to find that deeper sense of self and purpose? So one of the ways, another way to refer to the division that causes fragmentation Mm -hmm. is the tension of opposites, Mm -hmm. the light and the dark the living and the dead, the healthy and the sick, all of those things are there too. And so the reason I'm willing to talk about and and enter into myself, the experience of all these levels of division with the fragmenting that goes along with any one of them is because of underneath, mythologically, underneath there's the deep unity of the world. There's the unity of the soul. There's the unity of the individual psyche. And so when the unity is lost, the only way to find it is to enter into the divided spaces, including one's own inner traumas. I call it the traumas up. That's the time to go to work. It's not the time to turn away from the trauma because the psyche is saying, look, you haven't dealt with this. And so, but it's hard to deal with trauma if we think there's nothing unifying below that. In mythology, there's always the underlying unity of the world. And in in human psyche, I like to think of that as the deep self. Uh, You can call it the deep soul. You can call it the unique spirit in a person's life. There's so many names for it. You can call it the philosopher's stone. You can call it the gold inside the heart. It means something that is unified, something that has the capacity to awaken in a person and give a person open up resources that we didn't know we had, which is what we need to solve the fragmented elements. The idea is when we get in trouble, you go deeper. If there's the understanding that in the very depth of things is a unifying soul of the world and a unifying self in the person. That's how I imagine it. Mm. 
to get to the deep self, we would have to pierce the narrative, the ego, the story that we think we are. My sense from the people I work with is that most of us really act from, even if we don't consciously think it, from the story. The story is living us and our perception. We, we think that you know our perception gives us reality, but actually our reality is our perception. So how do we get to beginning to unravel that, the sense of leaning up against or allowing ourselves to touch those disturbances, those fragmented parts, the places that where we're afraid is full of richness, but nobody wants to go there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one approach is the old idea of the little self and the big self. Uh, the little self, people call it in psychology, the ego. So the ego self or the little self. And that's the story that you're talking about. It's the, it's the narrative of the little self that, for instance, one of the voices of the little self is, I can't handle this. I can't deal with it. So whenever I hear that little refrain inside myself, I know enough to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've handled things that I thought I couldn't handle many times. And I've seen other people do it. So that's the voice of the little self. Um, and strangely enough, the little self with its kind of um, limiting narrative wants to pretend it's, it's in charge. And so the prime example to me, you know, living in the United States is Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a case of the little self being put in charge of everything. The, he pretends he knows everything. But, it, but, but in psychology, the, the old statement is the bigger the front, the bigger the back. So when someone says they're the only one can fix it, watch out. It means they're empty inside. It means they're pretending. You could call it the false self. And so I tell people that I think that, that he was elected so we could see these symptoms and learn psychologically from it. That our own narrative, the little narrative, which is usually a combination of, well, I'm okay, because the little self is the self we present to everybody. You know, which is trying to say, I'm okay. Don't you like me? I'm powerful. I'm strong. And but inside of that narrative is emptiness and hollowness and fear and anxiety. And so the little self, even when it's put in charge, is very shaky and tends to be thin skinned. Mm -hmm. And so it's a tough thing to do. But we have to realize that most of us, most of the time, as you already said, are being driven by the narrative of the little self. Yeah. So then what I do is say, well, because I got intrigued with mythology as a young person, and now I look back and say, oh, that was the big self saying, hey, there's bigger stories. And so what I've done for decades is take mythological stories and invite people to come into the story and then say, okay, what part of that story is most compelling to you? And a person will unerringly pick the place in the story that represents the trauma that's underneath the narrative that has them trapped. Because part of us knows there's a bigger story. Part of us knows there's a bigger, deeper self. And part of us knows that we're supposed to find it. And it's more available when we're in trouble. And nowadays, we're all in trouble. That's brilliant. One of the things that I love about your work is looking at the ancestors and the old stories and things that happen like that. And I, I believe that much of this is ancestral hand-me-downs, 
But at the same time, the resiliency and the ability to meet these kinds of challenges. I mean, our ancestors went through war, famine, burning at the stake, you know, uh, so many things. But one of the things we don't have, and I love you do this, I know with, with young people that are youth at risk, is the whole idea of rites of passage and initiation. It could be said that what we're in right now is a rite of passage, an initiation for, for humanity. What, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I call it a collective rite of passage. Yeah. And I'm old enough to have lived through the 60s and something similar happened in the 60s. And friends that I have that are into astrology said, the astrological alignments are similar to the 60s and to periods before that. So like you said, we've gone through this before. It's different each time, but there's something similar. And so there was a partial rite of passage in the 60s. You had civil rights and the feminist movement and all kinds of things that changed and, and music and poetry and festival came back into the Western world, but it didn't follow through all the way and it kind of got sidetracked. So now it's making a comeback. This is a time like that in the sense that there's nothing to do when change is happening on such a grand scale except transform. And sometimes that kind of energy for transformation, moving from one form to another, which is what a rite of passage is, sometimes that happens in a way that's global. It's global right now. The, the climate crisis says that. The COVID crisis says that. Briefly put, a rite of passage is the uh, going from one position through an uncertain area of challenge and usually some kind of suffering to arrive at a new position. That's the passage, the three parts. And what I've been saying is the world as we knew it, the world that we thought we were in is already gone. It's gone. Part of the division in the United States is people saying we want to go back to what we thought we had. And other people are realizing, no, there is no going back. What we thought wasn't there anyway, but it's not there anymore for sure. And then where we're going is unclear. And that's what makes it, the uncertainty so palpable. So the, the, if you understand rite of passage, then at least you know, okay, there's some sense to this because it requires a shedding particularly a shedding of things that weren't fully alive, that weren't working anymore. And that creates the space for the new ideas and the new vision to come in. And so we're in the middle ground, which they call liminal space. That's what they used to call it. Limin is the, the threshold at the bottom. I mean, the bottom of a threshold. So we're in the threshold. We've left where we used to be. We haven't even pictured or usually envisioned where we're going. And we have to learn to live in that middle, which means accepting more uncertainty, which is what causes the inner uneasiness and the anxiety and the fragmentation. And not knowing has to be something we can tolerate. And also somehow, and this means getting out of the shaky little story that's as most of us trapped, because as Rumi would say, the world inside is greater than the world outside. And so inside there is psychic space. There are spaces to learn about inside. And it's in opening those spaces that I think we begin to get visions of the future. This is old mythology, but it's also shamanistic. That is to say, 
we're on our way somewhere, but the place we're going is trying to communicate with us too. Right. It's not that we need a new strategic plan and then we all agree and we all go there. It's too late for that kind of stuff. It's more like we have to get ourselves in the position of being open enough to be able to get a glimpse of a vision that would represent the world that we're trying to go to. And so then you say, when a world is falling apart, when the fragmentation is in the world, it's in nature, it's in culture, then of course, we don't want that. We don't want that. But in order to get out of it, we need a new vision, not a new, simply a new plan. And so it's really tricky because starting from the idea of being trapped in the narrative of the little self, we have to become more open, more open-minded, more open-hearted, more open to things that we don't know yet. We're in a place of not knowing and that's really hard for everyone and everyone's ego is set up to pretend that we know what we don't know and now that doesn't work anymore. And so it really becomes the work of psychologically loosening up the ego, taking the power out of that little story that traps us and realizing that there are bigger places to be inside our own selves. And from there, we'll find a way towards where the psyche wants to go. Mm. So much in what you're saying. Let's see, which, which avenue should I go down here? Um, this thing about not knowing, I think, and uncertainty. From my experience, the resistance to embracing uncertainty is I might lose control, that there's a big part of it that's really that I, I have to know because I'll lose control and then I don't even know what'll happen, but something bad will happen. And the, the root of that, something bad will happen. I trace back to, I'm interested in your thoughts about this, to original sin. The whole idea, St. Augustine and the original sin, that people are born bad is embedded, particularly in our mechanistic worldview, but it's embedded in our language and our institutions. You know, when I look at a baby, I don't know how somebody can say people are born bad. That I, I think there's original goodness and that our culture is, has flawed that. And part of that, part of that flaw that we believe we have is something is wrong, something is broken about us. And so we need to be fixed. And this idea of having to be in control is because I'm somehow flawed or broken. I don't see the original goodness, the opportunity to do that. I want to be in control because God forbid somebody find out that I'm really not as smart, as rich, as whatever, as I'm trying to, as, as what I'm writing on my t-shirt mm -hmm. for people to see. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I was raised Catholic as well. I'm a, <laughs> so I'm I a re point there. <laughs> I'm a recovering Catholic. So the great thing about mythology is there's so many stories of creation and there's so many, because there's so many beings and there's so many ways of being that having one story is not an indication of a kind of a high spiritual level. It's actually an indication of a lack of imagination. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stories where what happens in the beginning is a mistake. And it's not a mistake that people made. It's a mistake made often by the creator. And so, so that was helpful for me to find that out, that um, in cultures, many traditional cultures, there is an original mistake, an error that was made. 
Uh, and another idea that I found really interesting is because in the Christian version of everything, this is the fallen world, right? The, 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 you have the world of heaven, which is the eternal place, and everybody's all good all the time and lots of good music. And then you have the fallen world. And because we're here, we're the fallen, broken people. Um, and so, but in mythology, there's a second creation. So you have the separation, the division, heaven and earth, um, which begins creation, but then there's a second creation on earth. And humans are part of that. Humans are considered to be uh, potentially, if people can awaken to it, the agents of ongoing creation. Um, and so one of the stories I pay, carry around with myself to help get myself out of those times when I start uh, backsliding into um, the trap of that I was given as a child, that we're bad and we're wrong and, you know, and, and we're going to hell unless, unless we do all these other things, uh, is this in ancient India, the story of Prajapati. And Prajapati is the original creator. And creation happens by surprise. Um, it wasn't a plan. He, he looks around inside and sees that things are kind of popping up in there and he lets them come out. And all of a sudden he realized creation is coming out of him. Although he's not only a him because sometimes he's called Vak, Vak, which is a feminine form. And so gender hadn't even been figured out yet. So it's both feminine and masculine. So all of creation comes out of a, as a surprise, as if there was an inner dream and an awakening, and it turns into, you know, forests and rivers and mountains and animals and birds. The whole singing thing comes pouring out of them. It's quite exciting. Um, and then after it all comes out, suddenly he, she feels all alone, like some kind of cosmological postpartum experience. And suddenly feeling alone causes fear. And that's why they say ever since then, when a person is alone, they often get afraid. Anyway, now comes fear. And then after fear comes uh, anxiety. And after anxiety comes sadness and grief for the loss because all of that excitement is gone and it's getting darker. And so now Prajapati, who's the creator, is going into all of the negative possibilities of life. Uh, and then he realizes that's creation also. And so then he engages in all those things and all the difficult, dark and, you know, troublesome things about the world are also born from him surprisingly. And then, then he, she realizes that no matter what is happening, whether it's the beauty manifesting or it's the sadness, you know, causing uh, aloneness and fear, uh, they're both forms of creation. And then once a person realizes that, you realize we can accept it when something goes wrong. We're not bad. That's what I was told as a kid. You're bad. It's a really mistake. It's also a really, uh, it is a sin. Whoever does that to a child, that's a sin. <laughs> and so, um, so we, we have to get out of that little story that says, because the things are going wrong, I'm bad. And say, no, I'm sad. That's what it is. I'm not bad. I'm sad. I'm lonely, I'm fearful, I'm anxious. And then the third thing, there always has to be a third thing. All the meaningful things happen in trinities, not in pairs. And the third thing is the saving grace of the inner connection of the individual soul to the soul of creation or the soul of the world or the imagination of spirit, whatever you want to call it. And by being honest about the emotions and saying, you know, instead of someone says, hi, how are you? Instead of saying, fine, 
which, you know, you can't say fine anymore. That's the world's too troubled to say fine. You say, no, you know, you know how I am actually, you know, when I was a kid, I was left alone a lot. And now because of COVID-19, I'm alone a lot. So I'm actually going back into this feeling of being overwhelmed and being tiny and scared. That's how I am. How are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? We just own the emotion and, and realize it's in our bodies as well, because all this stuff lives in the body. And the next thing, if we can stay with it a little bit and have a few friends to encourage us, the next thing, this deeper sense of self starts to appear or the voice of our own actual, the spirit of our life, which never goes away, gets a fuller expression. And the next thing we realize, no, I can handle being afraid. I can, I know what to do if I move my body in ways that make sense, I'm not as anxious. If I can meditate, I can be calm. If I can create, I can feel not just centered, but energetic too, you know, and so on like that. This is the time to learn those kind of things because it's going to last for a while. So much richness here, Michael. I, I just, every time you say something, I have 10 more questions. I'm listening to the listeners who are listening to this thinking, oh, good, I'm going to get some more valuable information. But information is not the path to connecting with the soul of creation. So before you talk about that, maybe you could distinguish between information or knowledge and wisdom. Okay, good, good suggestion. Um, so one of the old distinctions, for instance, in Greek philosophy is between uh, information and gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. And gnosis means not to have information or not even to have simple knowledge, but to know something with your whole body, with your heart and your soul and your mind, to have a living experience of knowing something. And so let's say, uh, it's interesting, a person goes through something traumatic. And, and if they don't run away from the trauma, if they step into it, they become more than an informed person, and they even be, can become more than a knowing person. They become wise with what they can derive from the trauma and the fact that they survived it. So that, and then a person like that, you can't change their mind with silly ideas because they go, no, I've kind of died and been reborn. So I know something about what's happened in my own life. So that's gnosis. Wisdom is an interesting thing to me has two roots in terms of etymology and the origin of words. And one root has to do with guidance, what you would expect. Someone gives you wisdom. And the other root has to do with lyric. The root actually goes into lyricism. And so there's the wise side, which I'll come back to. But what's so important about wisdom is it has a lyrical, musical, poetic, artful side. And so Wisdom is knowing the rhythm of one's own psyche and soul and body. So when people are now doing yoga or if people are doing ecstatic dancing, they're actually in the process where they realize it or not of learning the natural rhythm and the style of movement of their own body, which gives them body wisdom, lunar knowledge. It's really important. It's harder to scare a person who is, has an embodiment of who they are. And, and so, so part of wisdom is knowing who I am and knowing what my body is and what my body wants and what my, how my body moves because 
Fear paralyzes a person, but if a person knows their own rhythm and knows their own way of moving, they don't get paralyzed because they move. They don't get caught in the fear. You actually can move your way through anxiety as well. You can shake it out. You could dance it out. So wisdom is really bringing the body and the mind together. But it's also, so another thing about wisdom is it connects the ancient with the immediate. So wisdom isn't abstract intelligence and it isn't, you know, having a phrase that keeps you wise because what's wise in one situation is unwise in another situation. Wisdom means to connect the ancient knowing of the ancestors and the kind of inspired knowing of the philosophers and the artists with the immediate thing that's happening in the world. That's wisdom. And so it's just a tremendous thing. And it is really very distant from information. And so that's why I was thinking about inner wisdom since the outer world is flooded with information and lacking with imagination and meaningful ideas. So we have to look for it inside, which of course is the message of the old stories. And so I just wanna repeat that part because I find it so meaningful that wisdom connects the ancient with the immediate. It has a spontaneous quality while it also has roots in the oldest ways of knowing. And so it's something worth struggling for. And it's something that's more and more necessary. Hmm. Now, one of the pitfalls I hear there, when you talk about embodied, I think of uh, the Dubliners, James Joyce saying, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. I think that's more and more true. I came out of the corporate world, as you, as you know, where I worked with heads on sticks and we carried our head to meeting to meeting. But most people were quite and are still quite disembodied and don't know that. So to get to this wisdom and to begin to have a sense of the soul of creation, that kind of connection you're talking about, our first line is that we have a body, we were born, it's our instrument. So how do people begin to recognize and get into the spacious interior of presence in a body? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's challenging if you're a child of this modern world where, you know, I remember people will say, well, get out of your head and into your body. I remember James Hillman one time saying, my head is in my body, you know, (laughs) but that's not kind of true for everybody. And then there's these strange language things like uh, to find out who's present, you do a head count, but a body count is a count of all that are dead. And so so the the way we count is divided head and body. And so it's it's a really severe and strange thing. And so... I don't know how people do it, except maybe it's kind of like bhakti. So bhakti is the path to the sacred that's, that's based upon like devotion and an immediate willingness to bow to everything as if the divine was in everything. And so in order to bow to everything, you have to kind of be embodied. And so I think of it partially as people finding their body path. And their, and their devotion path and, and the way that they would be uh, devoted to the world. I think it's simpler than some people make it out um, in, in the sense that um, there's things that move us. 
you know, that move us individually. I didn't realize it when I was young, but I, I really, when I look back, was always moved by rhythm. I liked melody, but I really liked rhythm. And then one day in the most broken condition I could be in, I was a young father with an infant daughter who was ill and no doctor could figure out what was wrong with her. And I felt like I was falling apart. I felt like I had no worth and no value, but also I had no idea where to go or what to do. And so I was walking around in the city, just trying to walk my way into something and I heard this music that I recognize as African music coming from a closed storefront and the door was slightly ajar and I looked in and there was someone in there teaching people how to play and dance African music uh, and songs and things and then I slipped in because it was like a rejuvenation of my body at this point of broken sadness and it was free it was coming out into the street and I slipped in there thinking I'll just stand here because I don't feel as scared and I don't feel as as anxious and I don't feel as small and then the man Dumasamani Mariere that's his name I want to say his name from Zimbabwe he saw me and he came over and he started to bump me with his hip and he said uh, he said uh, if you can uh, if you can walk you can play if you can talk, you can sing. If you can count, you can, you can drum. What are you going to play? And he just kept bumping me. And, and then I saw this drum set, these two drums that were available. And I said, I'll play there. And he showed me the rhythm and I could do it. And the next thing I'm playing in this African ensemble and I'm getting totally carried away. And I forgot everything that was breaking my heart. Mm -hmm. and, that, it, and it wasn't the forgetting that mattered. That was helpful. But I got into my body. And I felt myself being present. Yes, I had agony, but I was in my body and I could add to the rhythm of the world. And I was in the song and the dance. And it, re it opens up something inside, not just the heart. It opened up organs inside. Mm -hmm. And I went back home so convinced I'm going to find a solution to this illness myself. And it turned out that the solution had to do with diet and it had to do with the body. And that led to me beginning to study diet in the body. It changed my entire life as well as my daughter's life. Mm. And so, so people have to find that thing that's calling to them, mm. a rhythm, a song, a silence, whatever it is, and trust it because the body knows more often where we need to go, what we need to do. Mm. So that's what I thought of. That's beautiful. What a, what a beautiful, yeah, I always love your personal stories the best because mm. <laughs> they're so real. And we all have those kind of stories. And a couple of times now you've brought up trusting and, and being able to go into uncertainty and, and a lot of things like that. And both times I've thought, ah, faith, what is faith? You know, it's not belief. Think people mix faith and belief up, but Faith is something much more. It's what had you go in the door and yeah. allow yourself to get bumped up into your own rhythm. Yeah. Talk about your what, what's your sense and the, the kind of historical sense of what faith is, not the belief, but the actual having faith. Well, what it makes me think of is, is this really old idea that throughout history on the earth, uh, the duration of humanity since the beginning of human creation, whichever creation story you want to tell. They say that there's two things that have helped humans survive. 
And one of them is the capacity to be tough. Uh, and you see that now as everything gets divided, you have certain leaders and certain political parties that are going to be tough, law and order, you know, toe the line. If you don't, we're going to pe penalize you or hurt you. And so toughness can be a good thing. And sometimes a person has to do some tough thinking or make some tough choices. But toughness has never been enough to survive. And so the other side of it that has caused humans to survive has been the tender, the tough and the tender. And the tender ones are, or the tender parts of ourselves are related to like a little plant when it first grows. It could become a tree, which could be a tough tree standing tall in the forest, but it begins as this little bent over uh, sapling or green thing just kind of lift itself and it has to push itself through the earth. But if you were to touch it or, or imagine yourself like it, it's extremely tender at the beginning and it's part of survival too. And so the tender part of the soul is the part that dreams, the part that imagines. And I think what faith is, is a connection to the dream a connection to the capacity to imagine something bigger than what I am now, something greater than what I've been told. So I see faith as being connected. I see hope also as being connected to imagination and to this, yeah, so that a, a, a door opens a little bit and part of me wants to go through because uh, there's part of me that is looking for the dream to open. So when the door opens, maybe the dream will open. So I'll go one other place with that, which is if you go into the human psychology and you say when everything is divided and the tension of opposites is getting more and more tense, what in humans can respond to that? And the old answer is the eternal youth that stays connected to the dream of one's life and the wise old sage that is hidden in the heart. And if the eternal youth and the wise old sage can get connected then that underlying unity of one young and one old, one inspired by dream and the other close to wisdom and the knowledge of the heart, then those two can figure out how to survive the difficult period. And maybe there's a form of faith that occurs there when the old wise person is faithful to the youngest one carrying the dream and the youngest one is faithful, faithful to the idea that there's wisdom in someone or something that's been around for a long time. That's the kind of faith that I'm into. I love it. That's great. The sense that I have is that that will in all cases require a letting go of having to be in control, having to drive your direction to recognize that you're not the one beating your heart. You're not the one that's breathing. All these things that happen that you have nothing to do with, it, it kind of brings me to a place of, well, what is, the, what is the thing that would allow me to expand beyond the need to be control? And my thought is in that gratitude, thankfulness, that there's, because you can't be absent and be thankful. There's something about thanksgiving that is in the moment. It's happening moment to moment. What are your thoughts around that? No, I love that. I love that. In the Mayan myth of creation, uh, which is a great story, the Popovol, it's a tremendous story. Southern Mexico and down from there down, the Mayan cultures. 
So all of creation gets created and everything's good like it was with Prajapati, except something's missing. And so there's several creators involved and one is called Heart of Heaven. And Heart of Heaven realizes what's missing. Two things are missing. I mean, the birds are singing beautiful. The animals are doing all the amazing things they do. The flowers are blossoming. There's something missing. And Heart of Heaven realizes. One thing missing is there's no being conscious. There's no being that has been made that is conscious of the beauty of creation and of the amazing ongoing character of creation. That's missing. And there's a second thing missing is there's no being present yet who is truly gratitude for the gift, of, truly grateful for the gift of life. Mm -hmm. So then Heart of Heaven becomes busy making these kind of beings. And I have to tell you the truth. The first kind he made out of mud similar to other stories, but a heavy rain came and those mud people didn't do well. They melted in the rain. And so they didn't, they didn't have enough toughness. They were a little too tender, that group. And so then he said, okay, I have to make them out of a harder material. So he made the stick people and the stick people didn't melt in the rain. But the truth is they were a little narrow-minded, these stick people, and they had hard hearts. And their interest, apparently, they had a capacity to create on their own, but what they created was technologies. And so they were creating all these things that were really painful to all the animals and damaging to the earth. And so the animals began to complain about these beings that kept creating things that hurt nature. And so Heart of Heaven had to bring a heavy dark rain to get rid of them. And now he's ready to make another attempt. And in myth, it always takes three times. And so this time he makes people from corn. And corn had deep roots in the earth, but it didn't just blossom, but it brought forth fruit that was also a grain and all this kind of thing. And so the corn people came and the corn people were beautiful. They were capable. And amazingly enough, they had vision and inspiration just like the gods. And so that was a great thing, except the gods got upset and they didn't like having, first there was a they were lacking conscious beings. Now they had beings that were conscious like them. So they said to heart of heaven, you have to get rid of these. And he said, I can't get rid of them. And they said, well, you have to get rid of this visionary part. And he said, I can't get rid of that either. It's a gift. It's their gift, but I can make, make it smaller. And so what they, what they did then was reduce the vision of people so that most people just see what's in front of them. But secretly, they couldn't take it away entirely. So inside people is still the vision of the corn people that allows us on occasions to see just like the gods see. And that's what's trying to happen when we realize we've lost the world that we left and we're trying to go to another one. And then the question always comes up, well, where is this vision like the gods? And Heart of Heaven said, we'll hide it in stories. So that when people realize they don't know, they'll go to stories. Not the little story they're carrying around. They'll go to stories and stories will remind them that when you open your heart, you open a great imagination that's equal to the creators. And then you'll be able to contribute to the creation of the next world. Hmm. And isn't that just what we need right now is a new story. A story that includes, is inclusive of all of life. If you were an architect of humanity, how would you design a story that would honor all of life, all sentient beings, all nature, all elements that could be embraced by anyone? 
so I don't think it's a new story. I think it's a new vision of the old stories. Wisdom is combining the ancient with the immediate. Mm -hmm. And so when Heart of Heaven in the Mayan story says the wisdom, the missing creativity, the vision is hidden in the stories. Uh, what it means is you go back to the stories, not as something traditional, old and fixed. That's the what happened to the Western world when it became fixated, when the stories became fixed. You have to believe it the way it is. Stories were always fluid and flexible. They're supposed to be alive. And so someone once described archetypes. The archetypes are like riverbeds. And sometimes the the water of the river is flowing through the archetype. And then sometimes it goes dry, like a dry riverbed. And then eventually the water comes around again. So the same things with stories. Stories are like, like rivers. So for instance, when I tell a story, I don't tell at the same time every time. I don't even try to. I don't rehearse. I don't recite. I learn the story, but I try to get it in my body. And I don't tell it until my body says, tell that story. And then, and then each time I tell it differently because... I'm different. The weather's different. The audience is different. And so when I say story, old story, I mean an old story that still could be alive. Mm. And so the old story is like the wise old sage and then the eternal youth carrying the dream turns that story into the story for today. And so when I talk about Prajapati creating the world out of beauty and abundance and inspiration and surprise and then creating the world again, out of sorrow and loss and fear. That's a 5,000, 10,000 year old story. It works right now. It works really well right now. And so that's what I mean. So it's different than what we were taught. And then there's so many stories. I mean, I don't think anybody ever has collected all the creation stories. So we don't, we have plenty of stories. And for most people, the old stories are new. <laughs> when the first time I went to Ireland, I got invited to come to Ireland to tell, to tell Irish myths at this festival, you know, at the Abbey Theater. It was one of the greatest things that ever happened. You know, I was totally surprised. And, uh, and I do used to play the baron, the Irish drum. And so I could tell the myths while playing the drum. But I was really afraid because I thought I'll be right in the middle in the Abbey Theater, you know, that was founded by Yeats. And I'm going to be in the theater surrounded by Irish people. And they're all going to know the stories better than me. And then it turned out they didn't know the stories at all. And I was telling them their stories and it sounded new to them. I mean, they recognized some of the names of the characters. And then, and then they're saying to me, well, what does that mean in the story? And I'm telling them what it could mean. And then all of a sudden we're all in a brand new story that's 5,000 years old. That's their ancestry, partly my, you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, there's a new world that's trying to happen, but it's also the same old world just being renewed. And I think that's when you talk about mythic stories, they are old things trying to wait for the water of life to flow through them again. And then they will give abundantly of ideas and images and vision. Yeah. One of the things we've talked about before <clears throat> is the idea of time and bringing up Ireland. I, I remember a time when uh, we were in a, in a pub and somebody was singing a Gaelic song and everybody was crying and I, said to someone you know that's everybody's crying what's this song about and he said oh he 
this is, this is a terrible thing, terrible thing had happened. This, uh, this boat was off the, the, the coast on the Aran Islands and it was filled, the women and children were trying to get over to the mainland and a big storm came up, they all drowned and they all died. I said, wow, when did that happen? He says, oh, that'd be about 200 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> different sense of of time yeah. you know yeah they're still the same, feeling it. the same thing with where we are right now we're very time bound and and we've talked before about the greek notion of time and i often talk also about the frozen time the 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 woundings that we carry are really frozen time mm -hmm. and the future that is here, it's all right here in this moment right now. Can you talk about the your sense of time and how that's affecting us and how this different notion of time can actually free us up and get us away from these strongly held beliefs that keep us in suffering? So it's another division, right? The, 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 the Greeks were great for this. They, they used the language to make these tensions of opposites. And it's three, too. <laughs> and then the third thing will come in because the two doesn't uh, solve it. It has to be a third. So the, the classic distinction is between chronos, from which that's the god chronos, the god of time, from which we get chronology, chronological time, time that just keeps waits for no one, one minute after another, which now has become digital time. And people are really watching many seconds occurring, you know, and time is like that. We're trapped in that time. We are literally trapped in that time. And then the contrast or opposite was Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, Kairos time, which really meant timelessness, the breaking open of time. And so before there was time, there was the eternal, eternity, no time, timelessness, the eternal ocean, no waves, you know, no cycles, no tides, the word time comes from tide. Anyway, so then, then there was time when the world you know, became manifest, created world. Um, so inside time is eternity waiting to be found. And so the idea was a moment would break open and a moment would become momentous. It would become, no one even knew how long it was. It was a momentous thing. Everything felt full all at once and something happened but time had to be broken for it to happen. And that was called Kairos. Kairos was also a young God flying with wings on his feet and considered to be the God of opportunity. So then, then, so this Kairos time is when the marching of time stops, time breaks open. One of the easiest ways to imagine, two easy ways. One is dreaming. When a person is dreaming at night, they're so far, even if there's a digital clock flashing in the bedroom, they're somewhere else altogether. And when you're dreaming, you could be in another century or you could be you know, way back at creation or you could be in the future. All kinds of things can happen. So uh, they say that dreaming is the universal evidence that people are not time bound, that people are not really trapped. So that's one thing. Another thing I imagine is, imagine the first or however many times you've fallen in love. I remember falling in love. I was in Seattle and I fell in love. And, and as a matter of fact, I was supposed to meet someone. I don't know if the woman I fell in love with, but anyway, I was standing next to one of these big clocks on the street, you know, how they have them 
big old clock like um, the old days. And I'm looking at it and I can't read the time. I can't make sense out of it. The hands are bigger than my arms, but I am so broken and thrown into the other world. I'm so enthralled with the possibilities of love that I can't even read a clock. So that's Kairos. So, so then this time that we're in, because we're betwixt and between is actually Kairos time. And on one hand, it feels like the worst thing but on the other hand, talking about clocks, on the other hand, we're actually closer to the eternal and it's trying to break through. And the question is, can we take that opportunity? And I mentioned earlier, rhythm, music and dance. And if a person is really dancing, they're not in time. They're, they might be in time with the music, but they're not in chronological time. Not if they're really dancing, because they're not thinking everything in them has now moved into the rhythm and moved into the beauty. And so one of the things that's necessary in order to survive this very difficult time is experiences of timelessness, Kairos experiences. The arts are more important. Love is more important. Nature is more important. You know how a person can be walking in the forest and they get amazed by the calling of the ravens, which sound like a language you could almost interpret. And then, you know, and then you smell something coming from the trees or the bushes. And, and if you allow it to happen, a deer goes by. And the next thing, you don't know where you are. You don't know what time it is. And you don't care. And by the time you get back to regular life with all of its pains and confusions and limitations, you're not quite as trapped because you've been blessed with timelessness. We need that more and more. Yeah, one of the words you use there that really rings for me is amazed. As I get older, I'm more and more amazed. I think that's one of the things that keeps us from diving into that deeper intelligence is the lack of not just amazement, but curiosity, awe. Brian Swim talks about uh, allurement. What is it that, that calls to you? You know, I love, I love Brian's uh, work. I don't know if you've ever spent any time around him, but one of the things that I always remember, he says, from a co cosmological view, you're the universe's way of seeing itself. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that perspective, you know, oh, that gives us a whole another, you know, sense of being here. That's heart of heaven. That's heart making, of heaven. Yeah. Making, making the ones who are conscious enough to see creation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the distinction between the first set of eyes and the second set of eyes, right? So the infant is born into the world and its eyes open and it sees the world and everybody later on explains to the child, oh, it's the world coming in and making impressions on the uh, back of your retina. That's what caused, that's what they tell people nowadays. That causes you to see. It's, it's kind of only a half story because the other story is that our eyes are walking us through the world and everyone born is born with a worldview, a worldview. And it's supposed to be a second set of eyes, the eyes of initiation that are awakened through a rite of passage. And those are the eyes of the heart and the soul. And when they open, we're actually seeing into the world and we're supposed to follow that thing that we see, the vision that's being born constantly from our old heart and soul, from the second pair of eyes. And that's the other thing we need now. We can't make the next world with the little infantile eyes that everybody 
recognizes we have to get this vision of the soul. And unfortunately, the only way to open those eyes is go through those painful places, the traumatic places that make us continue to be blind, uh, the wounds that need to be healed a little bit so those eyes can fully open. And so the good news is we're in a rite of passage, which means the eyes of the soul can open more readily. And the bad news is there's a certain amount of pain uh, associated with that. The people that go through the rite of passage come out with a mark, a scar, or a tattoo, or a piercing. That's what all that stuff comes from initiation, all those things. And we come out and then people can look at us and say, oh, oh, I see, you've been through it. You entered and you died and you got reborn and your eyes opened. And maybe we could trust you to take some responsibility and replace some of these people that are really trapped in the little story pretending they're big people. I think it's in the Talmud that they say, can you clear your eyes till you see nothing but the beauty of the divine? You know, so. That is beautiful, yeah. It's, it's so wonderful to be with you, Michael, and to kick off our new show with you coming on. Just thank you for all your many years of work and adventure and for being someone who shares from experience, not from just ideas or books, but really, I know you well enough to know many experiences that you've been with were hardcore <laughs> learning experiences. So just an honor to have you on, Michael Mead. Well, and I'm honored to be part of the first show yeah. of the new show. So thank you for inviting me and good luck. Thank uh, you. Everything is there at the beginning. So hopefully we got enough stuff in that, that it makes a good beginning and the show goes for a very long time. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.